Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing the album Signs of Life. Uh, it's an album. Um, it's Neil Gaiman with the four-play string quartet. Uh, there are 12 tracks on this. Um, and there are, uh, a whole collection of different types of experiences across those 12. There's an instrumental only track. There are snippets of Neil reading some of his own work that foreplay has put music to. There's works that Neil has written while foreplay was constructing the music. Uh, and there's also Neil, uh, the whole thing kicks off with actually him reading a sonnet by Shakespeare with foreplay, um, playing along with it, um. So there's a lot of uh, great stuff there. Um, the origin of Neil Gaiman and Foreplay's relationship goes back to the 2010 timeframe. Uh, around that time, uh, he was in Australia and did a live production of the reading of The Truth is a Cave in the Black Mountains. Um, and Foreplay basically provided the atmospheric uh, backing sounds for that performance. Uh, there were several other than restagings of that, um, that occurred and Neil and foreplay stayed in touch. And over the course of the next 13 years, uh, they collaborated off and on. Um, and eventually it culminated in the release of this album that came out in 2023, uh, signs of life. Um, it's available in a number of formats. You can get it in vinyl if you want it. You can get it uh, digital download only. You can get it as a CD. Uh, uh, I'm listened to it. Uh, I picked up the, the, the vinyl. I actually got the purple version of the vinyl because I'm a big fan of the color purple. Um, uh, but I also listened to it then on the go more often in digital format. Glenn, I believe you got the CD uh, of it. Um, and uh, there's some wonderful cover art, which we'll talk about as we go. Uh, as well, but let's uh, let's talk a little bit about string quartets, should we? Yeah, we need to talk about foreplay string quartet and and back up string quartets at all. Before we do that, though, I also want to say, you know, this is hot off the press for us. This came out in 2023. We are recording this in 2023, though. You are not hearing it until 2024, <laughs> but uh, this is like the closest and the smallest gap between the publication of something by Neil Gaiman and us covering it. I do not think that this is a record that will be broken. I can't imagine that <laughs> that it will be. But uh, yeah, let's talk about foreplay string quartet and string quartet more broadly. There really are two meanings of the term string quartet. I mean, quartet means four, right? And string means a string instrument. So a string quartet is, you know, any four string instruments. If you've got, you know, uh, a mandolin, uh, a guitar, a harp, and a double bass, then you've got a string quartet. But classically speaking, a string quartet is one cello, one viola, and two violins. But the phrase has also come to mean a specific type of composition that is composed for that instrumental makeup, composed for cello, viola, and two violins. Uh, there are rules to this form. Those rules do not concern us here. But this form is really one of the major forms of classical music, right? There's, you know, symphony is the form for an orchestra, right? It's the most popular form for orchestral music. String quartet is probably the most popular form for what's called chamber music, meaning, you know, non orchestral music, music for a smaller ensemble of musicians. And this form dates back to Joseph Haydn, who popularized it in the 18th century. And then, you know, there's just been zillions of these by basically every composer there's been since then. 
But let's talk specifically about foreplay here, because foreplay string quartet does not do classical music, although the musicians are all classically trained. Nonetheless, they think of themselves as a band. They uh, sometimes have a singer. I mean, it's the, the violin player is also the, the singer. Foreplay has five studio albums besides this one. Their albums tend to be a mix of original compositions and also covers. Uh, the covers are fantastic. I'm just going to give a sample of them here that I think matter to, well, to the two of us, Brent, but then also presumably to our audience as well. Uh, they've covered the Doctor Who theme. So, you know, that's a real game and connection right there. They've covered the Simpsons theme. They've covered some Velvet Underground. It's uh, Femme Fatale. They also, and Brent, I don't know if you've heard this, but one of your favorite bands when we were teenagers reading Sandman for the first time, you know, as it was being published, was Ned's Atomic Dustbin, and they have done a cover of Cut Up uh, that's fantastic. Uh, they've also done a cover of Miles Davis and, and lots and lots of other covers as well. I mean, these are a lot of fun. I will say the original compositions are also great as well. Before we move on as well, I just want to make sure that we say the names of the individual musicians. That's something that I think is really important here. So the violins are Lara Goodridge. She also is the singer when there are, you know, singing when there is singing on the tracks. Tim Hollow is the other violinist. He also does play the viola, though, when they want a second viola. And in fact, they use some recording techniques to sometimes actually make the music a string quintet rather than a string quartet. Uh, but the regular viola player is Shenzo Gregorio, and then their cello player is Peter Hollow. As I mentioned, uh, there is uh, a Shakespeare sonnet. Um, otherwise, all of the words are uh, written or co-written by Neil. Um, and the music is um, – and this album is all from foreplay, except one of the songs um, is credited in part also to Ben Folds. Um, uh, and uh, that for that one, Amanda Palmer also contributed to the lyrics along with Neil. Um so, and that was uh, the problem with Saints, uh, which is a fun version. You can you can find many people's recordings of it, but uh, this is the opportunity for Foreplay to record their version of it. Um, but we're gonna talk about some other tracks that are kind of some of the ones that Glenn and I wanted to pick out from this one. So, uh, Glenn, why don't you um, get us started? What was the first track that you want to talk about? Yeah, right. We're just going to go back and forth here. We are not going to review every track on this album, though that certainly was a, a temptation. But we're just going to go back and forth. We're going to end up talking about, well, at least focusing on five tracks. I think we'll probably invoke some others here. I want to start with Bloody Sunrise. Uh, to the extent that such a thing exists anymore, Bloody Sunrise was the single from the album. I mean, it had a video and, and everything. The reason that this was the single from the album is that it is a 1960s pop song. It is done in the style of Petula Clark. Everybody knows Petula Clark, even if you don't know the name. You have heard the song Downtown, even if just, you know, in a, uh, you know, on a film soundtrack at some point. The lead singer here is Lara Goodman, though Gaiman supplies some backing vocals that are pretty fantastic here. Foreplay provides the bulk of the music, though there is also some percussion here. I mean, it is a pop song, so you know, little percussion required. There's a tambourine, there's a xylophone. I thought I heard a triangle in there as well, but that's actually not listed in the uh, the liner notes. What is listed in the liner notes is the fact that the music is by Gaiman. This is the only track that says that. It is unclear to me what that means. Like, I don't think that Neil Gaiman has training with music as writing music. That was this was not explicated in any way. Uh, but 
in any case, the result here, I think, is awesome. I love early 60s pop music. I especially love it when there's a woman vocalist. Uh, we get all of that here. But then, of course, that gets bonus points if it's a sad song, which this definitely is. Uh, and I think that can bring us here to thinking about the text, which is, of course, by Gaiman. And the text of this song is, well, it, it's a vampire love song. That's what it is. Uh, Lara Goodman, Lara Goodman sings from the perspective of a vampire who is looking for love and not finding it, and not finding it mostly because, you know, she has to kill people to survive, and also she can't go out in the daytime and and so on. Uh, there's just some classic loneliness and social isolation in the lyrics here. It feels, uh, you know, a little bit at least like a parody of a love song, but that simultaneously is itself a great love song. Uh, so to me, yeah, this was a real highlight of the album. It works, uh, you know, both with the music and with the text. I really loved this one. It was real fun to listen to. It definitely gets stuck in your head as a lot of the songs do. Um, and it's because it's a vampire song, it works for any time period, pretty much, uh, in that you could be imagining that it is something you were is occurring in the sixties that that's where the vampire protagonist is, is, uh, going out and trying to find love and then being defeated by the fact that vampire and also sunrising. Um, or it could be that it's in the modern era, but it's someone who was made a vampire and, you know, came of age in the time period in which, um, that music would have been a lot more popular. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a callback to someone being even more kind of out of place, um, uh, with their environments. But, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, and there's actually a YouTube video that the band did of this, uh, track as well. Um, which I, uh, recommend folks check out if they're interested in, uh, seeing how that staged. It's, uh, was fun to watch and fun to listen to. Um, enjoyed that song quite a bit. Yeah, the video had, I think, some of the hallmarks or the, the compositional hallmarks of 80s horror cinema, actually, which uh, I think was part of the uh, the attraction for me. And I will say that, you know, I picked this track, I absolutely adored this track, but I did also hear this before the album came out because that video, even though I generally don't internet, that, uh, that video had made its way to me prior to the album's release. And so that actually was my first experience of it. And it, uh, uh, it was part of, I think, what, what worked for me. And so I second your, uh, your recommendation there, Brent. But all right, let's uh, let's go to your first track, Brent. I'm excited to hear what you kind of picked out here as your your favorite track off the album. Let's talk about Mobius Strip. So Mobius Strip appears on the album right before Bloody Sunrise, and uh, it was a recollection of Neil of remind of remembering his own grandfather teaching him how to create a Mobius Strip from paper. Um, but in the song itself, it's it's the narrator reflecting on learning this as a child and being uh, amazed by the magic of it. Um, but then uh, as time progresses, finding that themselves are walking the strip where everything is both kind of comforting, um, but also then the twist occurs and things are uh, different than they were. And oftentimes you end up, you know, falling in and out in the same kind of patterns uh, throughout life and running into the same people. Um, and also it's Neil reflecting on specifically what it's like for him to now be a grandfather and have grandkids as well. So it's, it's thinking about kind of the, the cycle of things, um, that we all are on this kind of evolving, uh, or, uh, you know, never ending kind of strip that is, uh, nonetheless performing these patterns. And so there's a great, um, feeling of both familiarity and comfort, but also 
uh, discomfort. Um, and you find that things get stretched as they move forward, but also because it's just the way things are, like things tend to then fit and stuff. Anyways, I, I love the imagery of this um, and the narration, but I also love kind of the thematic components of what Neil was going for in the drafting of it. I, I also apparently um, Dave McKeon stopped by the house when they were working on this at one point um, and played piano for quite a bit. Uh, Dave McKeon uh, has produced a lot of great music himself. Um, I wish that there was, uh, I, I would love there be a, a collection eventually if, if I don't think they did make, make recordings of it, but this is the excerpts from recording sessions. I would like to hear more so than like the 50th version of that one time Kurt Cobain was still trying to figure out what riff to do for smells like teen spirit. I would love instead to hear uh foreplay and Neil and Dave McKeon sitting around a cottage, um, trying to come up with what Mobius strip maybe should sound like. Yeah, I think that's the sort of activity that you and I want to be invited to uh, now that we ourselves are, are middle-aged. And that, I think, was a lens through which I listened to this track as well, was uh, appreciating the sentiment of what Gaiman is thinking about here. Because as a 40-something with a, a young kid, I have found myself suddenly really thinking a lot about the future in terms of what is the world going to be like when I am gone? What is going to be the state of the world for my my child uh what is my child going to take with him from me and what is my role here what's my responsibility how could i be doing this better all of that felt like it was in the subtext of of mobius strip here which i really really appreciated uh, one thing we should say as well about this track just in in comparison to bloody sunrise is that bloody sunrise is a song it is sung here in mobius strip this is a spoken word right this is a, a poem and it is recited as a poem rather than sung but what's uh, your next song that you want to talk about? I want to talk about the wreckers. And here I'm going to start by thinking about the text. This is a free verse poem by Gaiman. It was written for a friend who had just suffered a miscarriage. And so it's about grief. It's about pain. It's about loss. Uh, I am not really sure how comforting this poem is, but also I'm not the intended audience here, right? I mean, Gaiman was writing this for a specific individual he knows. So, you know, that's not a point where I, you know, can really offer any criticism, but I don't know that this would have been comforting to me in that circumstance. I'm not even sure I care for the sentiment, actually, of, of this poem either, but the imagery is great. So is the music, which I'll get to in a minute. But I want to zoom in on some of the particulars of the text first. The title refers to people who live on a coast and intentionally lead ships astray so that the ships are wrecked. And then the idea is that the coastal people will loot the wreckage. Here, Gaiman specifically is thinking of 18th century Cornwall. And there's some really fantastic imagery here. We get moonless nights, hard storms, uh, but then also we get lights that seem like they signal safety, but actually signal danger. And all of that is just the first stanza. And then we move into the part of the poem about loss. And here, Gaiman talks about nature being 
cruel, you know, that pain and loss are a part of existence, that, you know, the bad comes with the good, right? That, uh, you know, we can't really feel the goodness if there isn't badness that goes with it in some way. He also invokes the ancient Greek religious tradition about the goddess Demeter losing her daughter Persephone. Now, of course, you and I have very recently met Persephone in uh, Sandman, Last Batch of Sandman that we we covered. And so I like the imagery. I like the allusions. I also really love the music. But I think maybe before I, I talk about the music, I'm, I'm actually curious about how you reacted to the text of the records, Brent. I mean, I agree with you. There's a lot of great imagery here. Um, I struggled with this song quite a bit because I loved it, but I also felt very disjointed as I went where I felt like this is a kludge together of like three or four different stories that are all going on at once. I think there is a couple through lines um, about kind of taking the good times and the bad and kind of the uncertainty and, and you know, with, with the records being the framing, um, the setup is, you know, feeling like you're on the ship and you can trust certain things. You can trust certain guiding lights, literally. And then finding that those guiding lights actually are leading you astray and causing you all kinds of damage and grief, um, and loss. Um, there's just, there's a lot here. Um, in that way, I, I don't think we're used to having songs with so much layering in the text and so much put together. I think as a standalone poem, uh, we are more accepting of a whole bunch of things being there and spending quite a while kind of unraveling the different potential meanings as we go. Um, but I think it does ultimately work, um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, as a performance piece with the music uh, integrated into it. Well, I think the music is really what unifies all of these sentiments. I had very similar experience to you here, but I think the music really, yeah, it's the it's what unifies all of these different sentiments here. The music, I think, is just remarkable. This really sounds like it's the the slow movement of the types of string quartets that classical composers are writing, you know, now in the early part of the 21st century, or really maybe since since the 1970s, so over in the last 50 years or so. The cello takes the lead here, which is unusual. Uh, the other strings then come in and out. And the cello often sounds like a foghorn. The two violins often sound like seagulls. It may be that, you know, the imagery of the text is working on me and coloring right the way that I'm hearing that, but that then also might be in, 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 but it also might be the case that this is intentional, right? That the musicians have have done exactly this, that they were going for those types of sounds to accompany this description of a, a coast, of a seascape, a stormy, uh, moonless nighttime seascape that Gaiman is describing here. But I will say that the deployment of the music is also really important, right? The music makes space for Gaiman's text. There are places in this track without any music at all. But then, conversely, the music also supplies long bridges between the passages of the poem that I think actually makes the different sections of the poem feel like they work together better than when you just read it with your eyeballs, where it does feel like these are distinct sections, maybe even distinct sentiments that are related in some way, but what's relating them or what's unifying them really is this music. Um, also, we'll say that there's some pizzicato from one of the violins that makes me feel like I'm being stalked 
a little bit here. Uh, pizzicato, I should say. Pizzicato is a type of uh, a plucking. But uh, yeah, in all, I really thought the music was uh, moody. It was broody. That really captured me first. And then on a few more listens, I really started paying more attention to the, the text. But um, even with, I think, our justified criticisms of the text here, this as an experience really uh, compelled me, really moved me. But all right, what's the next track you want to talk about, Brent? The next track I want to talk about is uh, Signs of a Life. And I will mention um, regarding Signs of a Life on the vinyl version, this is actually the last track on the album. The vinyl version does come with a code so you can get all uh, the tracks as digital versions um, uh because you've paid for the vinyl. Um, and so there, the final track, Oceanic, um, does not appear on the vinyl. It does appear, I believe, on the CD, and it's in the digital form, but it's not on the vinyl. Um, I don't know if that was for space or some other reason. Um, but uh, Signs of a Life is uh, a very hard track to listen to if recently you've lost someone, because um, it is very much a meditation on um, someone's passing. Um, and depending on your reading, it could also be like realizing you yourself are passing. Uh, that was kind of my initial read on it, but, uh, uh, I think it works either way. Um, and reading the liner notes on it, it is meant as, um, additionally denial and then kind of regret and grief at the passing of someone else. Um, it, it starts with uh, thinking about the uh, indent of a pillow and then that kind of fading over time. But it's, it's all of the dreams and all of the characters and all of the things that that person would have brought forth into the world, particularly kind of creative expressions. Uh, it reads to me very much like Neil considering the loss of, you know, wonderful creative uh, people he's dealt with um, and has met as well as, you know, kind of reflections on how he would feel if he is lying and realizing in bed that he's about to um, pass away as well um, about all of the uh, books and, and kids and jokes and all the things that he won't have again. But it's, it's a quite affecting song. Um, and I think it, it works very well. That's signs of a life. Um, just really enjoy the song, but it, uh, it's a hard one. And I think if you are still in the midst of grief, um, it's either the kind of thing you definitely will want to, if you want to lean into that grief, then here's the song for you. And if you don't want to lean into that grief, uh, skip this track for, uh, you know, maybe a few years. I think something that's definitely happening here in, in our discussion of these tracks, Brent, is that it's, it's becoming clear that, you know, you and I spend a lot of time talking about work from, 20-something Neil Gaiman, and sometimes 30-something Neil Gaiman. But uh, Neil Gaiman is now in his early 60s, and I think that most of these poems were written you know, after age 55, and it feels like that, right? That this is Neil Gaiman, uh, you know, the, the, the words that we're getting here is, is a Neil Gaiman who is sliding through the cusp of middle age and old age, right? And really starting to think about legacies, really starting to think about mortality, but also just experiencing mortality as well, right? As as he's getting older, uh, experiencing different types of losses. And it really is 
all over this. And this is not just then the most recent bit of Neil Gaiman that we have covered. It's also Neil Gaiman at his oldest. Uh, in fact, I think one of the features of our show, Brent, is that you and I, although we encountered Neil Gaiman for the first time as teenagers, are now older than Neil Gaiman was when he's writing most of the things or when he wrote most of the things that you and I are covering. But here we are actually reading text by, by Neil Gaiman decades older than us, right? Um, and that's in, an interesting perspective, I think. I hadn't really thought about that before we hopped on the mics today, but I think it's something that has come out in our conversation uh, that I'm definitely going to think about when I revisit this album, which uh, you know I'll probably do again when I drive to work tomorrow. So, Glenn, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, four great songs that are either, you know, sung or poems with backing uh, instrumentation. Uh, but there is a track here that is just music from foreplay um, inspired by in part Neil Gaiman, um, but not uh, by that. But do you want to talk a little bit about that track? Yeah, I think we should do that. I mean, we are a Neil Gaiman podcast, but yeah, uh, the musicians are really important part of this album. They they got one track all the, to themselves here. Uh, so yeah, this is the track Neverwhere, which is an instrumental track composed by Foreplay and a kind of jam session, uh, just something that they were doing while also they were working on the music for this album. And Really, it's a pop song that doesn't have any words, right? Doesn't have any lyrics. We've got a cello providing the rhythm here. The viola and the second violin are providing the harmony. I mean, this is a simplistic way to present this, but that's you know broadly what it sounds like to me. And then the first violin gives us a really nice melody that you could sing to if you're so inclined. You could make up your own words to this and just follow the melody line of the violin to to do that. It's fairly fast. It's got some slower intervals. It gets a little angry at the end, I will say. And of course, the title is taken from Gaiman's story, uh, Neverwhere, which of course is both a TV show and a novel that uh, probably we will get to someday. But it's actually been so long since I've read the book, and I've actually never seen the show. So I don't know offhand, you know, how well the piece works as a kind of soundtrack for Neverwhere. But I will say that um, nonetheless, I enjoyed the heck out of it. Yeah, I think it was a real enjoyable song. Um, it's been a long time since I've uh, consumed either of the Neverwhere um, forms that exist. If I remember correctly, it first was the limited BBC series, um, uh, just, I think, two or three hours. Um, and then he wrote the book adaptation of the series. Um, if I remember correctly, it was the script came before the book as opposed to the other way around. But um but yeah, I think that some of the themes in the context of the name of it reminded me a little bit of some, what I could recollect from, you know, 20 years ago um, when I last consumed that. But uh, uh, I think it's an enjoyable piece of music, uh, again, independent of thinking about that at all. And Neverwhere is also just a fun word um, to, to, to use for things. Uh, so uh, I think you can supply whatever story you would like to based on whatever's going on in your life as you're listening to it um, to fit the word neverwhere. All right. Well, let's start talking about this album as a material object. Now, you you have mentioned already, Brent, that you had the vinyl. And yeah, as you said, I did also then get the, the CD. So we both have a physical copy of this. And it is great. It's great as a material object. Uh, one thing that's awesome is that uh, it's got liner notes, like serious business liner notes, pages and pages of it that has uh, the lyrics for everything or you know the, the text for everything, really, I should say, which in itself is useful and great to have. But also, there's an introduction to 
each track that I think for the most part is actually written by Foreplay, uh, but some of them seem maybe to have some input from Gaiman himself there as well. You know, broadly speaking, something you and I talk about when we cover short stories is that something we love about Neil Gaiman's short story collections is that Neil Gaiman writes real introductions to his collections where, you know, they're, they're pages long. They're, you know, 10 pages, dozen pages, 20 pages sometimes where he goes through and has something to say about each story that's in the collection, including the circumstances of writing it, what he was going for and so on. I love to have that. I always get a little well, grumpy when I get a short story collection from someone else that doesn't have that. Like this is like half the reason I bought the short story collection was because I wanted a robust introduction. And uh, I was really excited, really thrilled to see that. Yeah. The album has a robust introduction as well, or series of introductions. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. You, you know, like I think can get some joy out of listening to this if you get the digital download, but uh, you'll be missing something if you don't get these liner notes as well. Yeah. I, I think the liner notes are, um, just also nicely produced on the page. I really like kind of the color choices for the, uh, you know, the, at least it might be for the CD as well, that the titles of the albums in the liner notes for the, uh, record, um, the titles are in different colors. Um, but the rest of the text is, is white on black. Um, I guess kind of reminiscent of uh, Sandman in that way, but, uh, no, I think it's really great with a lot of Neil's work, um, where we have these little, Bits. And as you said, in most cases, I think that these notes are, are mostly from foreplay. Um, but still, uh, I like knowing about kind of what helped inspired stuff or a little like bit about what, you know, was involved in the creation of it. We don't get a lot of details. It isn't exhaustive anyway, but it's just a taste and it helps you kind of see, um, a little bit what kind of was the intention there. Um, as a brief aside, we could spend a long time talking about intent of the author versus, you know, what you actually as the audience uh, deal with. I think it's fair to say that no form of art actually uh, the no intent of an artist fully survives contact uh, with an audience. Um, uh, and so I think you're free to even if you read things and you're like, oh, Wreckers was meant as this to nonetheless find your own meaning and dispense with it because that's what might have been intended by Neil's poem, that doesn't mean to be what your experience is at all. Um, and I think that being able to separate those things is just like, oh no, it's interesting to know, but there's not a right thing for any of these. What what strikes one person one way can strike someone else differently. So I just something I think the internet culture sometimes forgets is that particularly when it comes to art, uh different people are allowed to have different interpretations of things, even if the author did quote, mean something when they created it. In some cases, it doesn't have to matter at all as to how someone receives it. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's it's interesting uh, with that healthy perspective in mind to get a little bit of the peek behind the curtain about the production of things. Um, one, album, uh, one track that I didn't talk about, um, but I thought about talking about um, was Song of Songs, which is it's a Neil poem that uh, here he wrote a chorus for it so he could be a song. Um, but the foreplay at the time was working on a ska inspired kind of, uh, kind of reggaeton, um, uh, style of music. And so he, they briefly mentioned, and that kind of opened up my, uh, listening to it. And then I was 
noticing more kind of the ska influence um, in a way that uh, before I was picking it up a little bit, but not as explicitly. And it was, so it was interesting to me to think about that. And then I went down a rabbit hole of thinking about ska and thinking about reggaeton and thinking about, you know, how it does and does not relate to, you know, Venn diagram style, like klezmer music and all it's, it, it opens a wonderful bunch of avenues to, to explore other music, not just from foreplay, but from other musicians. And so, um, and all thanks to these wonderful liner notes. Uh, the other thing that the, the the album gives us is some just beautiful art, both the cover art as well as the interior art. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of your thoughts and some of the the art with, that we're given, Glenn? Yeah, we should talk about the artist, of course. This is uh, Sean Tan, who's uh, well, you know he's an, he's an illustrator. Also, has written his own books that you know he's done the text for, and then also the illustrations for. Uh, those are those include graphic novels as well as kids' books. Uh, I really know Sean Tan as the illustrator of Pretty Monsters by Kelly Link, which is a fantastic, really wonderful bit of uh, weird fiction. Kelly Link just awesome all around. Uh, but yeah, the art in here I think is a big selling point for this album as a material object. The cover is really awesome. It shows kind of a, a family farm that happens also to have on it a gigantic human skull that the family is actually living in. It's like the farmhouse or you know a cottage or something like that. There's a woman out front planting a garden, but then there's a man on top of the skull who's decorating it by painting flowers on it. There's a uh, some chickens hanging around nearby. I, I don't know if, you know, technically this counts as surrealism, but it feels like it to me. It, it feels a little bit like, you know, Salvador Dali, for example. And I just thought it was awesome. Yeah, it's a beautiful image. Um, and I will mention that on the the website associated with this release, Neil Gaiman Foreplay, I don't remember what it is. You can Google it. Uh, you can get this image as a standalone print, I believe, or on a canvas tote bag, um, of course. Um, uh, and it's gorgeous. To me, this whole album, every track of it, at least to some extent and to many extents, huge extent, uh, is um, – and the cover art really is an example of Memento Mori. Um which is, you know, presentation of the idea that you will die. And it's the remembrance and thinking it's remembrance of those who have died. It's thinking about the kind of the, the limits of your own life, um, and what you're going to leave. Um, the giant skull, I think can be surrealist. And also in my head, it's just, it's a giant skull and the idea of like standing on the shoulders of giants and just the, the, you know, to some extent, even as you get older and you better understand, you know, that your parents and grandparents were, you know, now that you've passed the age that like when maybe you, they were your age, you know, at the time, anyways, when you were a child, you nonetheless still will think of them in some ways as being kind of giants in terms of the footprint that they've left for you and the effect of your life. And so you can make what you will of it. You can make a house of what maybe they've left for you. Um, if, they've left you something. There's also kind of the art you can make on the wreckage of the devastation of their loss that you can make. Cause here we have, um, one of the folks, you know, has gotten on a ladder and is on top of the skull and essentially with a paintbrush is painting beautiful kind of collage of bits of art and all kinds of color on top of the skull. And it's kind of, you know, making the most of the time that this person has, but also coloring um, up and brightening up, um, you know, the loss of whatever this creature who left the skull was. And again, in my head, it's just the skull 
is almost you know those who have come before um and specifically those who you've loved who have come before and and who are now gone but still have this indelible effect on you but also get you to constantly memento more style think about the your own mortality um and so it's kind of a call to make the most of the time that you have um but also just at all times know that that time is limited um as it is for all of us but it's a uh, it, it's it's gorgeous and there's lots of wonderful pastel colors going on well i think something that you've hit on here in 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 talking about this cover brent is something we brought up earlier which is that so much of what's happening on this album is that this album is thinking about the process of aging and thinking about time passing like the long scope of 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 deep time one piece that we did not talk about is called poem first read on january 26th 2011 at the sydney opera house and uh it's a mouthful of a title but what this is about is in fact the passage of time it's uh, about the well really about the megafauna of australia before humans arrived on the island and then what has happened to the ecosystem on Australia because of the successive waves of humans coming to the island. Uh, this was actually, you know, I think part of a Australia Day celebration. It's a really cool piece. The music is fantastic as well. But this is a place also where, right, Gaiman is thinking about the passage of time. In this case, it's really incredibly deep time, thinking about time on on scales of, you know, tens of thousands of years rather than time on a scale of a human lifetime or you know three generations of human lifetimes but nonetheless that does seem to be like this idea of of mortality the passage of time this seems to be really the through line not just of the 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 lyrics but also even of the art here um and just you know something that really solidified to me that I myself am middle-aged is that uh, you said tote bag and I went, ooh, a tote bag. <laughs> I might be in the market for a tote bag. Uh, so yeah, it's on our minds as well, but it's clearly on on Gaiman's mind and is maybe the central theme of the piece. And I think that we get that as well in the interior art by Sean Tan, where we get two other landscapes here. There's um, uh, a landscape on the, the front flap that uh, uh, looks like a sunrise or a sunset with an eclipsed sun, which yeah gives this sense of like astronomical time, right? Deep time again. And then the back, we get two human silhouettes who are uh, near some kind of large rock formation that is, you know, equally silhouetted. I mean, it looks like it might be Uluru in Australia, but you know, this might not even be Earth. But again, there, right, we're getting this rock formation that is something that is created over eons, right? And so, yeah, the art, I think, is really giving us this sense of deep time that we get, at least in the one track on the album, and then getting all these senses of time elsewhere in the, you know, the text of the album. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, Sean Tan has done a great job here, not just of of creating really beautiful images or interesting images for us to look at, but creating art that I think is really in keeping with what is happening in the album itself. There also are some really good photos of Foreplay and Neil Gaiman um, recording as well as posing um, in various ways um, included within uh, by Chris Frapp that I will mention. Um, or Frapp, not sure. No, apologies, Chris. Uh, I'm not sure if you're Frapp or Frapp or the E is silent or not, but there's some great photos uh, throughout that uh, I, I recommend um, as some wonderful black and white photos. 
Yes, I really love the one of Neil Gaiman in his little recording booth in his home. I'm not sure which of his homes that is, but it's a beautiful photograph. Also, more importantly to what I'm saying here is it just looks like an amazing space. Like, uh, you know, I'm in my basement and it is not attractive, but Neil Gaiman's got an attractive space to be working in there. I had some real space envy uh, when I looked at that, but uh, yeah, great photographs as well. So, you know, I guess just to sum that up is, hey, this is a fantastic album, but it's also a fantastic material object. So we certainly recommend that you get this. And uh, I guess we recommend that you get a physical copy of it as well. But I think on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can catch us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Next month, we will be back with two episodes, one probably fairly big episode on The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And then we will be following that up with Neil Gaiman's Narnia fan fiction short story called The Problem of Susan. This is something that was uh, commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters, something I'm really, really excited about, something that's been in the works actually literally for years here at the network. So we hope to see you there. And until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>